Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it is Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it is Sunday, it is also Legal AF, just not live. That's available for all the fine folks who, Legal AFers, who listen to this on their podcast. Michael Popak, I'm cheery because we are heading into the holiday season with accountability. We're going to be talking about on the podcast, we're starting to see stiffer sentences um, in connection with insurrectionists who have been charged in connection with January 6th. We're going to talk about some of those um, sentencings on this podcast. We're talking about um, Mark Meadows being held in contempt on this podcast. We are talking about the January 6th committee, as you've always told us, Popak, be patient. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but always turn towards justice. We're starting to see the efforts starting to pay off with documents being received, whether it's from Mark Meadows, starting to expose some of the other aiding aiders and abettors from Fox News and other Congress members. So shocking that I have to call these some of these individuals on the GQP Congress members based on their conduct. But that's why I'm Cherry Popak. Are you Cherry? I, I, you just got me really cheery. Uh, Santa's bag of goodies, uh, and who's been naughty and nice, and we know who's been naughty, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's nice to turn into the new year in the first quarter of 2022 and start seeing some real developments and justice being meted out. I know our followers and listeners get, uh, get flagged and, and deflated by how slow things move in a process that you and I know move slow. You know, part of our job is to educate that some things go really, really fast, like in a temporary injunction setting or an emergency appeal. But most, the vast majority of justice moves at its own pace, a pace that you and I are used to, but our listeners and followers aren't. They're like, it's already the January, you know, 6th, almost anniversary. Why isn't everybody hung in the public square or in jail? You know, when I when I sign up a case, although Right now, my my legal practice is more transactional, but I still sign up big personal injury cases and big breach of contract cases and big, you know, other, you know, negligence related cases, you know, on the plaintiffs and sometimes on the defense side. But, you know, it's it's always in the past. I would say, OK, if I signed up a case right now at the end of 2021, I think to myself, you know, that case will likely go to trial in 2023, the earliest, but more likely 2024 or 2025. And so the efforts that we do as lawyers on our day to day practices when we sign up cases, and we know there's going to be a lot of work from now until then, um, in terms of just day to day stuff that has to happen. You know, there could be, you know, there's lots of rulings along the way, like we're going to talk about on this podcast in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News. They've been waiting for some time in the Delaware um, state court to get a ruling on the motion to dismiss that was filed by Fox News. And that motion to dismiss was denied. That's one of the steps in a series of lots of steps that take place in a case. But a case like that won't go to trial for a number of years. And so you, you, it's always interesting. You start planning in 2021 what you are going to be doing as a lawyer for your trials in three or four years from you, now. You and I are working on a case, I won't name it, that you, you and I got involved with it in 2019. I just got the calendar call 
and the jury trial is going to be in April of 2023. That and civil justice certainly moves a lot slower. Criminal justice goes a little bit faster because of Speedy Trial Act and constitutional provisions. But uh, again, I don't want to. I don't want to step on your good tidings for for the holidays. We have a lot of positive developments to talk about on this podcast tonight. And so let's start, though, by talking about within criminal law. I also want to talk in in civil law and other layers of accountability we're going to talk about on this podcast. But in criminal law, sentencing disparities. And we should talk about this has been all over the news. It's been all over social media that this truck driver who was involved in a fatal 2019 Colorado truck crash was sentenced to 110 years in prison. And for those who don't know the facts, um, there was a truck driver. He crashed into traffic on Interstate 70 in Denver, killed four individuals. The individual's name, uh, the truck driver is um, Rogel Aguirre Medeiros, who was 26 years old, is 26 years old, was driving a semi-tractor trailer in April 2019, traveling 85 miles per hour when the brakes failed, is what he told investigators. He tried to pull over to avoid stop traffic, but another semi-truck had already stopped there according to the arrest affidavit. And this crash led to a fiery 28 car car pileup that left four dead. There was a criminal prosecution. 23 charges were brought against this individual. And of course, our hearts go out to all of the victims, the victims' families um, in this horribly tragic situation. Um, the truck driver was charged with 23 charges, six counts of assault in the first degree, extreme indifference, 10 counts of attempt to commit assault in the first degree, extreme indifference, two counts of vehicular assault, reckless, one count of reckless driving, and four counts of careless driving, cause of death, was found guilty. And then on sentencing, the judge was restricted because there were minimum sentences that were available. Mandatory minimums is the term uh, to be served consecutively. And when you add up all the consecutive terms, you have 110 years in prison for this individual. Now, do I think this individual should be in prison? Maybe. Um, You know, in these situations uh, where there's a negligence that becomes reckless, um, yeah, there should be layers of accountability um, beyond the civil lawsuits that take place. In my experience, very rarely is an individual criminally charged for situations like this. These are civil lawsuits, incredibly tragic situations, but are usually dealt with as negligence. But a 110 year sentence on a situation like this seems extreme. Popak, what's your view of this overall situation? Yeah, let me tell you, you gave a very good detail. Let me give the color commentary about it. And it has to do with mandatory minimum sentencing. About 40 years ago, there was a trend started on the federal side where you would try to take out of individual judges coming up with sentences calculated out of their own heads and force them to follow, they're called guidelines on the federal side, but they really are mandatorily followed by, in general by the federal judiciary. That trend started on the Fed side. 
the state legislators thought, hmm, that's a good idea. Uh, we don't like some of the disparate sentences that are being handed out by state court judges, um, both on racial grounds and, you know, too light and too heavy. And the legislators, you know, got into their laboratory, you know, like like a judicial or, or a, a jurisprudential scientists and said, why don't we hamstring the judges who once we put them on the bench are sort of left on their, to their own devices, only policed by elections or by removal. And why don't we force them to stay within a box of sentencing? So the states followed the federal, the federal um, uh, path and came up with what you've referred to here in, in uh, Colorado as mandatory minimum sentences. So the judge who expressed during the sentencing that, that even he thought the resulting number of 110 years served uh, consecutively was too harsh, said at, at the same breath, in the same breath, I can't do anything about it. He's got the counts that he has. And if you go into the mandatory minimum sentencing or the federal sentencing guidelines, there is a matrix. There is an axis. It, it's the crime along the left axis. And it's the amount of time along the right axis with aggravating factors and mitigating factors that can be used to increase or decrease the amount. But you, you reeled off 10 or 12 counts, felonies, that the jury convicted him of, including ones showing reckless indifference or extreme indifference to human life, um, because it wasn't just a straight accident. He was going 85 miles an hour. Yes, his brakes failed, but he, he started the catastrophe showing reckless indifference how fast he was driving, and ran into that pileup. So the judge said, what am I gonna do? It's 25 years of peace for each of these four deaths and these other counts, and I have to add them together. I can't even have it run concurrently, which would mean he'd probably serve 30 years in jail instead of 110. So on appeal, now the, the defense lawyers have said, not only were there errors in the way the jury uh, was instructed and other issues that came up on evidence during the criminal trial, but we're going to attack the unfair draconian result of taking five counts or 10 counts across the matrix and totaling up, in this case, 110 years. Now, I don't want to take away from the loss of life here. Four families are without mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers, and others, no doubt. And I agree that he should have gotten some penalty I wasn't there for the jury. The jury heard all the evidence. So I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bigfoot the jury and take it away from what they, the hard work that they did. But the result for sentencing by the judge shows you the problem in this case with mandatory minimum sentencing. And one other thing, I want to get your view because we get a lot of questions on tweet on Twitter. Sentencing itself. You want to walk through a little bit, Ben, from conviction or guilty plea to sentencing the timeline and what happens in that time period and why it takes so long. I, I get frequent questions about, well, they got convicted, you know, four months ago. Why aren't they sentenced? You want to walk walk our, our uh, legal AFers a little bit through the sentencing process? Yeah, you know, the sentencing process involves a lot of paperwork. 
It involves, you know, a lot of, I mean, first off, the question is who is doing the sentencing? Um, and mostly the person who will be doing the sentencing in almost most circumstances is going to be the judge. And there are different standards, whether you're in federal court or whether you're in state court. But this process is a very long one. Um, that involves memos that are filed by victims, memos that are filed by the um, uh, defendant who was found guilty. There's a whole incredible kind of body of case law and, and legal practitioners who just focus on the right. sentencing aspect and putting together things that are called mitigation packets, um, which are I've basically- hired I've hired them. I've hired federal, set in the federal side, I've hired federal- sentencing consultants because in the federal side remember you have the federal probation department that prepares an official report and analyzing the defendant whether he took responsibility or not financial background gets all of the uh, people who want to give good testimony character testimony towards the person assembles it all the defense has the right to prepare its own report a counter report the prosecution does the same. This takes at least 90 days. I've never seen it take shorter than 90 days to prepare all of the post-conviction materials that are required. And then and then I got to hire, if I'm on the defense side like you, I got to hire a consultant to kind of help me with that because I'm while I'm good at it, I'm not an expert on the federal sentencing paperwork and advocacy. It's a whole nother level of advocacy. And, and as you said, some lawyers are just... All they do is federal, helping people with federal sentencing. Some lawyers, all they do is help you pick the prison that you're going to ask for. Because you also, if the person's going to be incarcerated, you have the right under the Bureau of Prisons, the BOP, to ask to have your person in one of four or five different prisons, minimum security, closer to family, that type of thing. That all goes into the report. And then there's a hearing with the judge. Yeah. And who your judge is, is often very determinative of the outcome and the type of mitigation paperwork that you're preparing on behalf of a defendant who was just found guilty is also trying to tailor it to who that specific judge is. And I'll just make this observation as we talk broader about sentencing. Do I think that the initial decision to charge Rogel Aguilera Maderos with all of these counts has something to do with his name being Rogel Aguilera Maderos and not being a member of the Sackler family who put opioids out into the public and are widely held to be responsible? And it's kind of a given fact that they're responsible for the deaths of 500,000 Americans, and they haven't even been charged with any criminal conduct or been involved in any criminal cases to date and have served no jail time. Yeah, absolutely. And as we go talk about from this setting in Colorado, Popak, to what's going on in Washington, D.C., with the insurrection, what we've seen is judges giving slaps on the wrist to a lot of these insurrectionists and treating the insurrection as just basically loitering. And that's been very problematic yeah. to watch that. But there's been one federal judge who's not been like that. And that's your favorite D.C. Circuit judge. I mean, D.C. District Court judge, not circuit judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin. You want to talk about Judge yeah. Tanya Chutkin and specifically here, Popak, what this district court Judge Chutkin did in connection with, I believe the individual's name is Robert Palmer, who just received the lengthiest prison yeah. term imposed in the oh. insurrection, about five plus years. 
Yeah. I, we, we, we on the podcast really respect and love Tanya Chutkin. Not only is she the judge, just to remind our listeners and followers, for all of the highest end of the sentencing continuum for the Jan 6 insurrectionists, and there are 700 of them that are now coming up for sentencing. But remember, she's also been the judge that made the ruling against Trump in the National Archive case that went up and got affirmed on a three-judge panel appeal and is now heading up to the Supreme Court to turn over all the records from the National Archive to the Jan 6 committee. So she does everything just really right, follows justice. I wish the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit had the power, and she does not, to put all of the cases, all 700 cases, in front of Tanya Chutkin for sentencing because things would be a lot better in terms of the the, uh, meeting out of justice. So Robert Palmer from Largo, Florida, which is a small town uh, near uh, Tampa, uh, pled guilty, uh, did not go to trial, pled guilty to counts involving that when he was on the Lower West Terrace. These are now locations in the Jan 6 insurrection that are taking on the totemic meaning like Iwo Jima or Bunker Hill, the Lower West Terrace attack, not to be confused with the other group that went down the speaker's hallway into the chamber, but the Lower West Terrace attack of which Palmer was a major part, he took a fire extinguisher and he blew out its contents towards Capitol Police. When that didn't stop them from coming after him, he threw the fire extinguisher at, at them. He swung planks and flagpoles. Now, fortunately for Palmer and for the police, other than the fire extinguisher, he didn't hit his mark. So it, it's it's not battery. It may be assault, which is what he's been charged with or convicted of, but it wasn't battery because he didn't actually he didn't actually uh, physically brain somebody with the fire extinguisher, although I'm sure that was part of his intent. He he just got 63 months, which is now now the marker being laid down by Judge Chutkin. It's the highest sentence being given so far of the 700 prosecutions. The next highest sentence, just to put it in, in context, is almost two years less than that. The, the shaman guy got two years less than that. But Chutkin spends a considerable amount of her time at the sentencing hearing. This is the last step of sentencing process that you and I just talked about. And this was a 90-minute hearing. This, was, this wasn't just like, okay, I've read all the papers, here's your sentence. This is 90 minutes. And she spends a lot of time putting everything into historical context, talking about if you're going to participate in the violent overthrow uh, and you're going to try of the, of the country and you're going to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power, I am not giving you home confinement to go watch Netflix. That's almost a direct quote. From yeah, the direct quote was, quote, it has to be made clear that trying to violently overthrow the government, trying to stop the peaceful transition of power meets absolutely certain punishment, not staying at home, not watching Netflix. Right. Maybe legal AF for the next time around. Now, of all of the people that have, uh, that have upon which there's been report of the sentencing, so I have to rely on the media because we're not in those courtrooms yet, he seems, Palmer seems to be the most remorseful. He was, I mean, I don't think these are crocodile tears. Um, uh, he was pouring tears. The family was pouring tears. He, he um, said that he was overly influenced by Donald Trump, that he never should have done it, that he saw the report of what he did on Rachel Maddow and was shocked by his own depravity. 
Um, I mean, he said all of the right things. Um, his lawyer tried an interesting angle here. I want to get your impression, Ben. One of the lawyer's pitches during his advocacy for lower sentencing was, Your Honor, the people that lit the fire, that lit the flame, and are the organizers, and Donald Trump himself haven't been prosecuted or sentenced yet. So don't sentence my poor guy. He was just following orders. Of course, that failed. What did you think about that as a, a potential defense strategy? Well, I agree with Judge Chutkin's response to that quote. I don't have any influence over that. I have my opinions, but they are not relevant right now. Quote, you are correct in that no one who was encouraging everybody to take to the Capitol has been charged as of yet, she says. But as a judge, I don't charge anybody. That's not my job. Yeah. And that is, you know, obviously implying Donald Trump and his inner circle. But I do think what we see, Popak, is a climbing of the ladder to the apex, um, which is Donald Trump and his inner circle that you, you know, you focus on these cast of clowns, not a cast of characters at first, the shaman idiots and all of these just complete you know, jokes and, and idiots, but we need to take their conduct very seriously, but get them to plead first and just remove the sideshow. There, there Climb were, up to Palmer, then keep climbing yeah. is what they do. Two last comments before we move on to the next segment. One, I had, I had said at the last podcast or so that Kentanji Brown, who's also on the DC circuit, I thought definitely has a star next to her name for potential Supreme Court pick for Biden. Because just to bring our followers and listeners up to speed, this, the D.C. Circuit is a feeder ground for Supreme Court justices. A lot of them have served time on the D.C. Circuit. Merrick Garland was a judge on the D.C. Circuit. I think Tanya Chutkin, if she's not in the mix on the shortlist for a Supreme Court pick by Biden after how she's acquitted herself uh, and uh, uh, during this uh, Jan 6 process and, and all things Trump, I'd be shocked. I think she has moved in to the top five or six for him to consider on that list for a future Supreme Court. I think she's doing really that well. And the last thing is maybe you, you covered this on the Brothers podcast or you will. I mean, you have you still have, as you said, why do we have to call the members of Congress when they act this way? But they still are. Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're my favorite uh, soon to be former member of Congress, um, actually said that there's no evidence that anyone of the 700 insurrectionists were armed on that day. And that is a bald face lie. If you look at the, the prosecution memos and indictments for the 700 who are being prosecuted, no less than 10%, 70, 70, came armed, meaning they had arms with them when they arrived, or when they got there, they armed themselves with bicycle rats, fire extinguishers, flagpoles, and anything else they could get their hands on. So. That is this this um, uh, BS mantra that that the right wing crazies of the party trying to rewrite history right before our eyes when there is complete evidence to the contrary is just maddening. And thank God judges like Tanya Chutkin don't pay attention to any of it. I mean, look, on the one hand, this is why our judicial system and having smart, intelligent justices and judges are important. You have the thoughtful deliberate rulings of a Judge Chotkin. And then you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene who calls victims of school shootings crisis actors, who claims 
that 9-11, you know, was a false flag and didn't really take place. And, and she's a member of Congress. My one my the one problem, though, Popak, is I do think that Marjorie Taylor Greene, unless you have some inside information that I don't, is probably going to stay as a member of Congress in her district, although I hope she's defeated. Lauren well, Boebert, I'm confident, is no longer going to be a member I, of Congress. I, I, I want to see I don't you know, you and I should offline follow the district a little bit closer uh, in Northern District of Georgia, uh, the Northern section of Georgia, and see if the brothers can do anything about that. Um, and I don't know how, she, how if she's delivering the bacon, as they like to say, and bringing home what you're supposed to bring home to her people so that they, they she like her. She definitely isn't. And we, we had yeah. on her Democratic how opponent. How can she? She's not on you know, one committee. <laughs> we had we brought on a Democratic opponent. You know, it's a very Republican district. But yeah. I, I, I think that can go either way. But, you know, she is representative of what the GQP is. But we but but that's to be determined. Just a can I give you quick- can I give you a scary thought and then we'll leave it? Yeah. Donald Trump wins a, wins and beats Biden in the next election. And we have Justice Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's something that would actually that's the type of person that Trump would appoint. And with the type of rhetoric that the House of Representatives talks about already, like you have Matt Gates basically saying, I'm not going to allow any single Democratic member to be on any committee without first begging me to be on a committee. So that's the kind of level of 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 intelligence or lack thereof that we're dealing with and kind of pro-fascism um, mentality. You know, I just want to give one other Judge Chutkin quote. Um, she's made it clear that, quote, I'm not punishing anyone for who they support for the flying spaghetti monster or whatever your political beliefs are. The- remember, and, and, you know, the flying spaghetti monster, I still think she's talking directly about Trump there. You know, whether you believe in QAnon, Trump, whatever crazy thing you wackos are this, believing in. This podcast sponsored by the flying spaghetti monster. Oh, absolutely. You know, and she was also an individual who in her ruling in the National Archives basically said that um, presidents are not kings and the plaintiff is not the president about Trump. She's got those incredible, you know, witty but apt Uh, one. Can I I make a suggestion for merchandise? I want to see a just uh, a judge, Tanya Chutkin um, uh, bobblehead. Uh, that, that you guys sell. I'm not kidding. That I don't know. Could you imagine that? Like we have the Gen Saki Sakis, which is already fairly embarrassing, but people love the Sakis and I love the Sakis. Yeah. And Jordy, who's our producer of the Legal AF podcast, probably like, dude, stop talking negatively about the Sakis. But we I have- want a bobblehead like my Shashevsky, my Mike Shashevsky bobblehead. Get one <laughs> we, for her. She's we, a real hero. We definitely need bobbleheads. But yeah, we actually have at Midas Touch for those listening to Legal AF. We sell holiday socks, but socks that are going to be sold in the future that are called Sockies that have Jen Sockies face on it and have Jen Socky quotes. But we could have, um, you know, you know, Judge Chutkin sweaters or Judge Chutkin bobbleheads that that will that that will crush things to look forward to in 2022. <laughs> I want to talk that we're talking about sentencing. We're talking about disparities in sentencing. The um, Purdue Pharma opioid um, catastrophe, the epidemic that has led to the deaths of 500,000 or more Americans through Oxycontin that's been um, manufactured and distributed and falsely marketed by Purdue Pharma. You know, the Sackler family, um, if you watch the the show about the Sackler family, I, I forget which network it's on, if it's on, I think it's on Hulu. I mean, it's uh, it's an incredible show. It's moving 
goes through all of the you know aspects of, of what happened from the beginning to kind of where we are now. Um, but all of the, you know, one, there's been no real criminal accountability. There's no Sackler family members. You know, they're all billionaires who are behind bars. Um, there was an overall settlement agreement in connection with a bankruptcy proceeding. And as part of that settlement, billions of dollars would go to states and to families and victims. And actually the, a new, you know, a new entity would control Purdue Pharma. They would actually still be making opioids, but the Sackler family family would no longer have control. And all of the profits from the company would be devoted to- Which I thought was quite ingenious, by the way, because opioids aren't going away, but to have all the money go to victims and counseling, it's like, it would be like if, if Philip Morris, in terms of a settlement, gave up Philip Morris, they're still making tobacco products, but all the money from tobacco goes to anti-tobacco. So a lot of states, a lot of state AGs, there's a division among states. A lot of states supported this bankruptcy settlement that would put billions of dollars, you know, into prevention, you know, into the hands of victims and, and family members. Um, and have this structure. Um, but there were also states that opposed it. And it didn't necessarily split Democrat versus Republican. I mean, there were just some states that had different views of, you know, Democrats, Democrats, Republicans. It was there were weird alliances that were formed. But the most controversial aspect of this is an aspect in the overall bankruptcy settlement agreement that provides for third party releases. In other words, releasing the individual liability of members of the Sackler family. They could still, let's be clear, they can still be criminally charged and face criminal penalties. But in terms of being personally sued, once their contributions to the settlement is made, which are billions and billions of dollars, they can't be individually sued. One of the reasons a lot of people were upset about this is because Purdue Pharma made so much money and so much billions of dollars that even if they contribute 15, 20 billion dollars to the settlement, if they're able to keep five billion dollars or so as a family and then put it in a trust that basically, you know, has interest over time, just do the math that in the next 10, 15, 20 years, that five billion dollars that they have will be multiples of what the settlement is that they're paying. And so is there actually accountability of the family members who are going to live out their rest of their lives in a lavish billionaire, you know, lifestyle. Now they've been socially ostracized. They've been, they, they've had to deal with that settlement. They have not been criminally charged, but their most recent update though, is a district court um, basically said the federal bankruptcy court did really not have the right to approve a settlement that includes third party releases in the way it did to individually release individual Sackler family members from liability. So this now creates a great deal of uncertainty, whether the overall settlement would hold up because that provision was kind of critical in the linchpin of the settlement. So you have states that are upset, you have states that are happy, it's a complicated issue because you want resolution, um, you want accountability. Um, does that necessarily mean, though, Popak, that we need to make sure that the individual Sackler family members um, are bankrupt 
themselves individually. Is that justice? And that process may just take years and years and years and years to happen. And then you're not actually coming up with productive settlement plans that help people right now. So where, where do you, where do you stand on this? Well, look, the Sackler, I think ultimately the settlement is going to go through uh, with the with the removal of the individual civil liability releases for the Sackler family members because there's just so much other value here that the Sackler family is getting from putting this all bes- uh, behind them with an amount of money that, as you rightly noted, is probably just a return on interest for them for their remaining fortune. So look, they made the they made a wise decision from their standpoint to use the bankruptcy laws and the protection of the bankruptcy court, which as you and I have talked about in the past, is probably after the Supreme Court, the most powerful federal court in the land is the power of the federal bankruptcy judge. Yes, there's an appellate process which happened here, which you and I will talk about, that's unique to the bankruptcy code. But the bankruptcy judge has more power over over the life of a company and a bankrupt and the estate and the monies and who pays what and when and whether the company's going to survive or not and how it's going to survive and the individual liability of officers and directors than any other judge that I can that I can think of the sacklers decided rather than be facing hundreds if not thousands of individual lawsuits or class action cases brought against Purdue Pharma and them individually for the opioid uh, addiction crisis, which was created by pharma, uh, by Purdue Pharma, who knew that their customers were getting addicted, who looked the other way because it, it brought in lots of sales into the, and revenue into their company, which is which is which is the heart of the lawsuits. That that Purdue Pharma, it's not that opioids by themselves are bad. Properly dispensed for certain conditions under doctor proper doctor's care. They have a role in pain management and in society. It's the abuse of them and benefiting from that abuse, which is at the heart of the lawsuits. So the Sackler family said, let's take, let's take Purdue Pharma into bankruptcy. Let's get the protection of the bankruptcy court and let's put an eventual settlement or plan of bankruptcy, what's called a bankruptcy plan of reorganization, together under the auspices of the most powerful federal judge in the land, a bankruptcy judge. And so they worked with the other side and a lot of the plaintiff's lawyers representing these families to try to put together something. Some attorney generals for some states were in favor of the settlement because there there was a a section of the plan that would give them money or their state's money for the addicts in their state that were generated. Some of the states, as you noted, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican or uh, Democrat, you've got opioid addicts in your state, depending upon how many you have, you may want a bigger share of that pie that's being administered by the bankruptcy judge. And if you don't think you got a fair amount, then you can you know, say, oh, I object. I, don't, I think we should get a little more to Oklahoma and a little bit less to Texas or New Jersey. And that, that is the tug of war that was going on in the plan. The Sackler family said, we'll give up Purdue Pharma. They basically just gave up the company and the continued right to get revenue generated or profit generated from it. They'll set it up in a, in a separate trust that'll be dedicated to profits going to the victims. The family said, we'll even give you some of our own personal fortune. We'll give you know $4.5 billion out of our coffers and put that into the pot. And, and what we want in return though, and this is the demand of the, of the Sackler family, 
is we want personal liability insulation. And we want as part of this that people will not be able to sue individual Sackler family members now or in the future. And that would have been fine, says the appellate court or the appellate judge, in this case, a district court judge in Manhattan, if the Sackler family members were themselves having filed bankruptcy under the auspices of the bankruptcy judge. Because the Sackler family members don't want to file personal bankruptcy, but want the benefits of bankruptcy protection in a way, that is where this appellate judge has drawn the line. So just to walk through the, the bankruptcy process, there's a plan of reorganization that is negotiated with creditors and the estate or the debtor and the U.S. trustee who assigns a trustee to be the trustee over the estate and makes reports with other professionals, including accountants and lawyers on behalf of the estate to the bankruptcy judge, in this case, a very fine bankruptcy judge in New York, Robert Drain, D-R-A-I-N. Judge Drain approved the bankruptcy plan of reorganization, which would have given the Sackler family uh, a pass on individual civil liability. But others like the, actually the trustee, the U.S. trustee and other states stepped forward, and I think the Department of Justice as well, and opposed that aspect of the plan and took an appeal. It's a first-level appeal. It didn't go to the circuit court for the Second Circuit in New York. It went to a federal Article Three judge sitting in Manhattan, Judge uh, uh, Colleen, um, Colleen uh, uh, I think McMullen, who has as her obligation sitting now, not as a trial judge, but as an appellate judge over bankruptcy matters, took a look at what Judge Drain did and said, I'm fine with it all, except for the part where you allowed people who are not themselves in the bankruptcy process to get a relief and take away the, the right of future plaintiffs to sue these people. They want that protection, they have to file for personal bankruptcy. And so she has rejected the plan and overturned Judge Drain's uh, uh, approval of that plan of reorganization. And the next step on the train is the Second Circuit Court of Appeals with a three-judge panel that's going to have to decide who's right, uh, the judge on appeal or the original Judge Drain of the bankruptcy court. Opak, what a great update on bankruptcy uh, law. Not an update, a summary on bankruptcy law. I was not expecting that. Me you know, neither. it's funny. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting, Popak, because I was speaking to a, big, a fan of Legal AF who's in the legal community. You know, one of the things that she had liked so much about Legal AF, which is something that I take, you know, for granted sometimes, is she was just like, What's really good about what you and Popak do, and I don't know how you do it, is you touch on so many areas of law, like criminal law, administrative law, civil law, bankruptcy law, environmental, environmental law at, at very significant detail. She's like, how long do you prepare, you know, for the show? And for those wondering, it's ongoing. Like th there's, there's something called it's continuing all. legal education. And to be, I think, a great lawyer, you have to really love law. You have to love these cases. And you're reading this not as work. Like it's not a chore to learn about these things. I'm reading about these things anyway, and Colin Popak about it, you yeah. know, regardless. And now we get to talk about it on a forum like this. Yeah. And, and I know our, our, the legal efforts like to hear about process with you and I and, and on the show. And during the week leading up to the night's uh, re live recording, you and I are going back and forth all week on 
hey, did you see this? Did you see that? What do you think about this? Is this good for the show? And that's the other thing. You know, you and I also, you know, we have a lane of the intersection of, of law and politics, and we try to stay in that lane so that people, when they show up for the podcast, they know what to expect. And, you know, occasionally we'll deviate, you know, we'll take the train to a different, a slightly different station. But you and I have that back and forth. Like I said, do we want to cover the trucker sentencing uh, while it's while it's it's interesting and there's a moral component to it, is it really in our lane? And you had a good argument with me. I mean, not an argument. I, I agreed with you pretty quickly that we could tie it into the overall sentencing min, minimum and mandatory and the racial disparity within that as we move towards our other our other items today. I thought that was genius. But you and I do this all week long. We're back and we don't just show up and go, hey, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, and look, I think it's important that. I wanted to include the trucker case also to remind people that even though we're talking a lot about legal cases that have this political aspect to it, it exists within this framework of justice and injustice that's taking place every day on all of these other issues. You know, it's just so interesting, Popak, like what we don't have on the outline, but which I just want to mention right now because it came on my Twitter feed is that the United States Postal Office reached a settlement with the NAACP for the 2020 mail delays and that people are calling for DeJoy to resign, which everyone calls for every single day. But there's just so much law, you know, aspects and cases that are coming up. And so in this settlement, you know, basically the U.S. Postal Service, you know, essentially, you know, admitted as much as, you know, one could admit in a settlement agreement, like there were, you know, unnecessary delays that were taking place, you know, that may have been politically motivated and politically charged and had um, disparate impacts, particularly on minority communities is ultimately the impact of it. I'll just read the quote. I mean, it's coming in the feed right now, quote, consistent with the Postal Service's steadfast commitment to fulfilling our vital role in the nation's electoral process. We agree to continue to prioritize monitoring and timely delivery of election mail for future elections. This will include outreach and coordination with election officials and election stakeholders, including the NAACP. See, Popak, we wasn't even on the outline today, but what was you what know what I think? want for my new, you know what I want for my new, I, I'm developing my podcast studio. This is the beginnings of it. But now that you've said that, I want a ribbon, uh, of a news ribbon, a ticker tape of legal AF stories that go on behind uh-huh. me, you know, updated in real time. We'll get like some college kid to do it and just have it run behind us. I mean, we really do. I mean, I, you and I changed the order for tonight like four times because things happened late, late Friday night, Saturday morning. You just got something now just in, you know, and we try because we don't want this to be stale. We really take our responsibility to communicate, you know, in real time developments so that our people are well-armed. We're not talking about things from three weeks ago. We're going to talk about things today where I'm going to start by saying on Thursday, on Friday, you know, Tuesday morning, it's Uh that that real. I mean, we may get to a point in the legal AF canon of podcasts where we have a, a spinoff show, maybe where we do a little more drill down, a magazine style, 60 minutes style on a couple of stories. But you and I get jazzed up. I, I said to you tonight, I think we got like 11 things to talk about. It's, it would set a record. And rather than you saying, nah, let's cut out three, you're like, let's do it. Let's do it. And I think the new phrase for the Popokian t-shirt is, Popokian, so fresh and so 
clean, clean, although we may run into some copyright or trademark violations there with that expression. So Popak, just briefly, you know, I want to give a brief update on the um, Derek Chauvin civil rights case brought by the federal government. He pled guilty to civil rights charges in connection to the killing of George Floyd as well as another instance, which was similar. Uh, the victim didn't die, but very similar circumstances of putting his knee on the individual's neck. Um, and yeah, he almost killed a black teenager in a, in a separate a separate arrest. Yeah. Then 14 year old boy during a 2017 arrest. And he pled guilty to both. Remember, he's already serving a sentence of 22 and a half years uh, in prison in connection with the conviction in Minnesota. Um, But Popak, does it surprise you that he pled guilty? I remember as he left the sentencing, he said something like the original sentencing, the original sentencing where he said something like, just wait until my next move or I have something up my sleeve. Like there was some implication that he had a broader plan. But do you think he's just at this point come to the conclusion that for the rest of his adult life, he's going to be in prison and and he just doesn't want to deal with any more trials? And it's just, um, you know, he just knows that that's 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 his future. Yeah, I mean, I assume there was and I haven't seen too much press reporting on it. And maybe you caught it uh, that there was some conversations or discussions with the prosecutors on the civil side, Department of Justice, uh, about if I plead guilty and take responsibility and don't put you through a trial, will there where will there be leniency? And there is leniency that's sort of baked in. It may shave off a couple of years here and there when they do the sentencing report, when the U.S. Probation Department prepares now the sentencing report, which is that process that you and I talked about at length earlier tonight. And that he has now accepted responsibility, and if he's if it's that, and he's and he's cooperating to the extent that he can cooperate with the um, prosecutors, maybe on other open cases, cold cases that he was involved with, so that they can also come forward and say, yeah, we want him in jail, but he has cooperated, he has accepted responsibility. I presume that the defense lawyers have had that conversation. They're not just winging it like. Oh, I hope if we plead guilty, they'll take mercy on us. There's been discussions, don't you think, Ben, leading into that, which have given him the uh, signal from the from the feds. If you make it easy on us in terms of this prosecution and sentencing, we'll shave a few years off. Maybe we'll even argue, maybe, and I'm just guessing here, I'm just spitballing, Ben. Maybe they'll let a portion of the federal sentence run concurrent with the state sentence that he's already serving. I have to imagine... If there is another strategy that Chauvin has other than basically kind of complete capitulation and admission of the guilt that he rightfully should have admitted to from the outset, that if there's a strategy here, it is to challenge the sentencing in the state court case to negotiate a deal with the feds that there be concurrent sentencing and to try to shave down 10 years or so from the state and try to make this 10, 15 year overall sentence as opposed to a life sentence. He's whittling, he's whittling down, uh, you know, he's trying to lock in uh, and stop the clock running on more time in the federal side because he's never going to win that trial. And he's already read the tea leaves on that. So now, like you said, he's just trying to make, you know, some sort of lemonade out of lemons 
and get the shortest amount of concurrent time possible. Uh, the show on Hulu I was referencing about the Sackler family is Dope Sick. Uh, so for all those oh, yeah. who want to watch that. It's is that called- Michael Keaton plays one Dope of the Sacklers? Sick. It, it, a, it a, is. That's yeah. good. I like Michael Keaton. Yeah. And he did a good interview also on, you know, whether it was, I think it was a 60 minutes interview um, where he talked about all the various roles he played over time. He's one of my um, favorite. Yeah. He's been incredibly consistent yeah. and very normal, you know, which is, yeah. which is uh, a hard combination. I mean, so- I mean, to play, to play, put aside Birdman for a minute, which he won the Academy Award for, but to go front and Batman, which people forget, what an uproar there was when he was chosen as Batman, uh, the first Batman when they made the revival. But to go from Ray Kroc in McDonald's to the head of the Sackler opioid uh, factory, fascinating range of talent, you know. Absolutely. And Popak, one of the reasons I'm so energized on this podcast today is also because of AG1, my athletic greens that I take every morning. I think that's also the factor in the Ben, the enthusiastic Ben that you're seeing today. And so Popak, you, you, you are your best Ben on AG1. <laughs> my best Ben on AG1. And so Popak, this podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens, AG1 by Athletic Greens in particular. What is AG1? Why do we love it so much, Popak? Well, th- th- let me let me give a personal story first. Because I had another, as you know, I had another one of these killer flip turns. Another one of these killer flip turns from one office to another. Another one from from New York, New York to Vegas. We opened a new office in Vegas, and I was helping stand it up. And a a bunch of partners and I flooded out there. And I I was in a seventy two hour flip turn. I felt like a flight attendant or a pilot between New York and Vegas, and I I was drained. I mean, and there was no, no, really no, other than two dinners, there was no fun time in Vegas for me. This is literally all work, uh, nonstop. I, I came back to my room, never turned the light on and just dove into bed. It was, I was that tired. And every day I started my day with AG1. And before tonight, this morning, I took AG1. And I feel, this is, this is honest truth here. I feel so much better inside and out having taken that and then feeling like I'm doing something for my physical well-being and my metabolism and my, you know, probiotic and prebiotic. And, you know, you'll get into all of all the amazing things that this company has jam packed into one powder pack. But I feel like I'm doing and I'm 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 my best popak on AG1. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy like the energy you're seeing here, and focus like the focus you see with Popokian aid with gut health and digestions. No one's gut is healthier than a Popokian gut and support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills. Clear those shelves when you have one healthy, delicious drink. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting Ready for this, Popak? Free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free 
travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. That is athleticgreens, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S.com slash legal AF. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. Take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You know, what else they, you, you know what else they have? What else? Because they I have a showroom that opened up across from my apartment in New York. They have a really cool, and we bought it, travel, I don't want to call it a travel mug, but travel container that you can pour the powder into, mix up with like this built-in spoon thing and with a, with a twist. It's great for travel. And using AG1 is also an icebreaker. I've been at hotel, whatever, breakfast places, and I'm using the thing and I got to ask for water and the spoon and the whole thing um, in the one pack. And people come over either because they use AG1 and they're like, you know, thumbs up, you know, you're part of the, you're part of this, this team. Or they're like, what is that? And then I get into a whole conversation about how great AG1 is. And you meet people, you know, in hotels, it's especially now with ice breaking. It's a nice way to get a conversation started. Popak, I love it. Speaking of health, we are vaxxed and relaxed on the Midas Touch podcast and the Midas Mighty are vaxxed and relaxed. I want to talk about the Biden's vaccine or testing rule, which has been tested in the federal courts, a victory by the Biden administration, finally, finally in the sixth Circuit Court of Appeals after losing pretty much and all the other uh, Court of Appeals. But there's a series of, uh, you know, common sense rules that the Biden administration has put into, you know, has put into place. This is a vaccine or testing rule. So you either get vaccinated and if you don't want to get vaccinated, hey, you know what? Maybe you can get tested. I think that's a pretty fair compromise here. And that's what that rule is. And that's for companies with more than 100 employees. We've talked separately, which is a separate legal case about the Center for Medicare and Medicaid services in connection with them, those centers offering their benefits, their funding to hospitals um, and basically saying for those in the healthcare industry, for those on the front lines, we need you to be vaccinated. You should mandatorily be vaccinated because you are dealing with people's health. It's like a, a bare minimum. Worker, it's a bare minimum that you shouldn't cough in my face while you're treating me. And then there's also separately um, uh, one involving uh, contractors and yeah. contractors of the federal government. But here, the one we're talking about is the 100 employees or more. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, uh, prevented this law from going into effect. We know the Fifth Circuit, we've always talked about their very, uh, I don't like to say conservative, but very, very right wing, um, you know, that encompasses Texas and, and surrounding areas. Um, but all of these uh, cases involving the vax or test rules from the various different court of appeals, this was consolidated into the Sixth Circuit and on a 2-1 Court of Appeals and on a 2-1 ruling upheld Biden's 
um, vaccine or test rule that will then go to the Supreme Court where all these cases are going. But Popak, maybe first explain why did it go to the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and what does this ruling mean? We have so I have so much to unpack in this one. I'm like giddy. To, to get going, Let, let's start with a score. Let's start with a scorecard. I actually have a score for those that are watching tonight. Uh, I want to give a quick scorecard of the three cases. Will you take a photo of the scorecard though and post it? Uh... Yeah, oh, for sure. No, and and like in law school, no, nobody will be able to read it. It's all gibberish except to me. But I will. I will do that tonight uh, before the show. So there. Let me just give the three cases that you just talked about and where we are with them. You've got the vaccine mandate by the Biden administration to impose on federal contractors. You have the one on uh, federal healthcare employees, so healthcare workers working in federal facilities. That's a second uh, mandate of the Biden administration. And the third one is using OSHA, which is the one that you and I just talked about, to to enforce against large employers of 100 or more mandatory vaccine or testing. So three different mandates with three different regulatory agencies, and that's important here, OSHA being one, uh, Health and Human Services and Medicare, Medicaid being another, um, and then the one under the fed- for the federal contractors being a third, and all ended up in different courts and different appellate circuit uh, circuits. The federal contractor mandate requiring all people who are, who are doing business with the federal government to guarantee that their people are vaccinated has been blocked that mandate by the 11th Circuit, which covers Florida and Georgia currently, subject to a a future United States Supreme Court review. The federal um, uh, mandate of healthcare workers in federal facilities um, was blocked by the Western District of Louisiana uh, federal judge. It is now up as of December 16th at the Supreme Court who will review that issue. That'll be the first federal vaccine mandate, as opposed to state or university vaccine mandate, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to adjudicate. It's going to be the federal healthcare worker coming out of the Western District of Louisiana. And there, the the Department of Justice just filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court that said, allow the mandate for federal healthcare workers to, to go into place Supreme Court because of Omicron and tens of thousands of people that could be affected while this is on appeal. We will see. That argument did not prevail for abortion. Let's see if it prevails with vaccine mandate, which the Supreme Court has already on the state and university level said that vaccine mandates and at the TSA level for for air air travel uh, and for masks is okay. So let's see what they say about Biden's federal mandate which comes from which federal agency has the authority to make that rule. We're back to the rulemaking under administrative law. And then lastly, you've got the federal, um, this particular one that you and I are talking about, which will end up at, at the Supreme Court in the next two weeks. How do we know that? Because the case started, uh, the, the one related to OSHA and the 100 plus em, uh, employee uh, mandate or testing requirement as a case that the Fifth Circuit had already ruled against. They already rejected the mandate. They're the same Fifth Circuit that upheld the SBA, Texas abortion ban, so you know where they sit on the political spectrum. And so the Fifth Circuit already ruled. So for for a minute, a hot minute, this 
a vaccine mandate kind of died. However, at the highest level of administration within the federal court system, there's something that's called the multi-district litigation panel. And there's a similar panel for appellate. And if there's a lot of appeals going on on similar issues, and there's a petition brought to consolidate all those appeals so that there aren't different decisions in different circuits, um, this panel this, this, and the chief judges that reside on it can make a decision to say, you know what? We don't want a decision of the 5th and the 11th and the 8th. Let's get one panel to make the of appellate uh, circuit to make the decision. Even if there's already been a ruling, they can still do that. They have the power to do that. So it was literally by lottery. They just spun a wheel and the Sixth Circuit came up. It's not because they said, oh, we'll, we'll stick it at the Sixth Circuit. It was really a random assignment of the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit isn't, I mean, necessarily a, you know, liberal thinking circuit. It, 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 it covers Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. And do you know who the, who the U.S. Supreme Court justice responsible for the Sixth Circuit is? I'm just going to guess Kavanaugh. That, boy, you are. This is why I love doing the show with you. It's Kavanaugh. In fact, if you look, I looked at this before the show tonight, Ben. The chief By the way, judge, that wasn't planned. That was me knowing the answer. That was answer. good. You, I, was, was, I spot, thought man. so. The chief justice assigns who's going to end up in what circuit. Which, which justice of the Supreme Court is assigned to which of the 11 circuits. And, and it would not shock you, would it, Ben, that the more left-wing or liberal-thinking justices have the Northeast and California, and the more right-wing justices have places like in the heart of the red meat, you know, uh, Trump belt. Does that surprise you? Does not surprise me. Right. So they don't take Sotomayor and put her in Kentucky, and they don't take Kagan and put her in Texas. They put them, I mean, that, but, that, but that just shows you how sort of underhanded even that process is. Because why Why isn't Breyer capable of making decisions for Texas? Oh, no, I'm with you. And so let me ask yeah. you a legal question. I mean, Kavanaugh sure. uh, legally is a douchebag. So what do you think that he's... <laughs> What, what do you think that he's going to do in this situation? <laughs> By the way, the, I, I one of the problems with doing this podcast, though, like when I say things like that is imagine if I ever actually have to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court, you know, and, and then Kavanaugh's like, did you call me a douchebag? <laughs> you know, on, on, on December on, 18th <laughs> of 2020, you kind of have, have to question, go if counsel. you're going to do the podcast commentary, you kind of have to go all yeah. in, you know, and kind of be I like, you're you know, all in. I'll have to tell my client, you know, imagine your client wants me to do oral argument. Like, so I want you to do it. I go, you know, the one problem is I called the judge a douchebag on the podcast. Well, you, you, you once <laughs> led into a segment with me about eight or nine shows ago where you said, Popak, all Republicans are pedophiles, right? <laughs> that was your lead in. <laughs> so what do you think? What do you think douchebag Kavanaugh uh, does? I, I, I think this, well, this, the, the, let me just give the, what happened at the sixth circuit. The sixth circuit basically overruled the fifth circuit and on a two-to-one vote, because it's a three-judge panel, ruled that the OSHA has the power and the rulemaking authority to properly regulate in this area. I'm sure Omicron has, uh, has I mean, I hate to say it's helped something, 
But three weeks ago, when all these judges were going, it's almost over. Who cares? Nobody's dying from it. And now you have, you know, half of New York is closing down again because of this and around the country. So that, unfortunately, has helped uh, the argument about the public health crisis that we're in and the mortality rate. So the Sixth Circuit said, no, OSHA has the power. The vaccine mandate and testing requirement for large employee employers is going to is going to survive, and we're going to enforce it with a two week. You know, these judges love these two-week gaps, a two-week enforcement gap to allow the parties to take an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So they have to make an application for an emergency application to Kavanaugh. You know, it's hard to tell. I mean, Kavanaugh, certainly we know where he stands on abortion. But even, even Amy Coney Barrett and Roberts and the rest of them seem to be okay with vaccine mandates. You and I talked 12 episodes ago about the Boston case, the Massachusetts case, about uh, the scourge of smallpox and the requirement of vaccines. Now, this Supreme Court's never met a precedent that it hasn't decided to wanted to run away from. I would normally say there's a, there's a healthy body of precedent that supports mandatory federal vaccines or state vaccines. But I, I don't know. I, all right, I'm going to, I'll have, I got to, this is why we get paid the big bucks. I think he's going to, I think he's going to allow the federal vaccine mandate under OSHA, even Kavanaugh. What do you think? I think that he'll allow it to uh, remain in effect. That's been consistent with the other right wingers on the Supreme Court. And so that's kind of where I think I think he nets out on, you know, on on that issue. And, um, you know, but but we'll ultimately see as this case, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services as the contractor rules and regulations, as those all work their way up for full oral argument, you know, uh, these will be um, cases that we'll be following on the uh, Midas Touch Legal AF uh, podcast. Let's talk about uh, January 6th related uh, legal issues. So Mark Meadows, uh, I think this is a quick one, Popak. I mean, we've given our uh, listeners and viewers updates on all of the Mark Meadows uh, travails. Um, you know, Mark Meadows initially said that he was through his lawyer would be cooperating in some capacity with the Jan 6th commission. He said that he would show up, he would invoke the privilege of executive privilege where he deemed that to be the appropriate invocation. Obviously, there are areas where executive privilege just doesn't apply when you're speaking to non-executive officials. So when he's speaking to members of Congress or when he's talking to the public, like writing about it in a book, um, you know, and not in direct conversations with the president, there's a broader argument to be had about whether conversations between the president and Meadows on January 6th is subject to executive privilege. I think it is not. I think aiding and abetting an insurrection has nothing to do with executive functions and that the executive privilege is not an absolute privilege. It's qualified one and that would give way to other broader considerations but that's not even what is at issue here what is issue is will you show up literally will you will you will you come to the office because you've been subpoenaed or come voluntarily but will you come to the office and will you just have the discussion you could invoke the privilege when you're there so if asked the question what did you and Donald Trump speak about the response would be from his attorney, I'm not going to allow Mr. Meadows to respond. We are invoking executive privilege. 
even if you invoke the privilege on areas where you're not supposed to, you're at least showing up. So if they were to ask him, you've produced and turned over these text messages, which would be a waiver of the privilege, but you've re- turned over these text messages of your communications with Jim Jordan about how to overturn the will of the people and have state legislatures elect their own slate of electors. Why did you do that? Even then, his lawyer could make the claim. We object executive privilege. What would happen if you're the one asking the question, if I'm the Gen 6 committee, I would put on the record that is an improper invocation of the privilege. We're going to be seeking sanctions against you. Case law clearly holds that that's not a privileged communication. You've turned over records as well. So any privilege claim is waived. Um, But we will have to go to court to argue that. That is not what happened here. What Mark Meadows simply did is said, you know what? I'm not showing up. I'm not even going to go through that process to make a privilege claim. And so the January 6th committee initially made the recommendation to hold them in contempt. And this week we had a full vote of the House of Representatives. All of the Democrats voted to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. Liz Cheney and Kitzinger were the two Republicans who sided with the Democrats. All of the other Republicans were like, you know what? We're cool with this conduct. Like, think about that, though. All of the other Republicans that voted to not hold them in contempt as Congress, like just the level of them sacrificing their own powers and authority. I guess they I guess they never think that they're when they're in power again and they will be at some point may not be midterms. The Republicans have just abdicated all responsibility. They must never want to hold any investigation of anything because they've now just flouted that. How are they ever going to conduct an investigation when they're the chair of the committees and they call people of any stripe before them when they voted when they voted against holding anybody in contempt? I'm with you, Popak. So there's really nothing else to report there. You know, I think well, that- let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. All right. I, all I just right. want to make I just want to make one observation. You've got a series of people from Meadows to Stone to Eastman to Clark who are all, and Bannon, who have all tried various ways to delay the inevitable. Mm-hmm. You've got Meadows who brings the lawsuit in civil court claiming executive privilege and won't participate anymore in the Jan 6 process until that happens. You've got Eastman along with some other Jan 6 organizers who have just filed a suit to try to stop Verizon from complying with a subpoena duly issued by the Jan 6 committee to get all of their text messages and phone records. Oh, can I just You've go got- over the Eastman legal arguments here <laughs> are like these, like just wackadoodle kind of theoretical, like what he's saying, the committee is not even empowered to issue subpoenas in the first place. But Ben, he is the chair of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. It says it right there on his business card. Are you are you saying that John Eastman doesn't know what he's talking about? You know, the broader concern with Eastman, you know, in addition to that, there's so many concerns about it, but <laughs> Eastman um, was a professor at a law professor at Chapman University. And so before all this insurrection stuff, like there were people I never heard of before today. Chapman University, though, is a law school in California. Um, You know, it's not like a tier one or tier two, but they produce a B it's ABA accredited, ABA accredited the last time I checked. And they produce, though, a lot of a lot of good scrappy kind of trial lawyers, you know, and again, 
my own view of it too is just because you know tier one tier two law, great lawyers are people who are passionate about the law and so whatever law school you go to i've known some great lawyer you know lawyers who come from law schools i've never heard of you know and but chapman is small school but you know a reputation of producing some good lawyers but and he taught law students other people <laughs> uh, that he taught other people and he's saying things like the committee's lack of validly appointed minority members or validly appointed ranking minority members make such compliance impossible. His lawsuit also argues the subpoena of his cell phone records is invalid, saying, quote, the committee is attempting to exercise a law enforcement function, adding that the subpoena infringed on attorney client privilege. I'm not sure how the like literally the record of phone calls happening, how that would infringe right. on any attorney client oh, privilege. Oh, they, they, they called each other. You, you know what? Yeah, the Eastman thing is great. And then I, I'm sure you caught that Stone, Roger Stone. I mean, I'm so tired of saying his name. He sh he actually showed up for his deposition or his interview, but he but he asserted invoked the Fifth Amendment to every question, which is also an improper invocation of the Fifth Amendment privilege. But I'll tell you, when I when I think the dust settles and all this is over and, and the delay that I started this this comment with occurs, which is now, frankly, going to put the Meadows, Clark, Eastman uh, tranche of defendants over the midterms. Because you see how close with Bannon, the trial's in July, three months from midterms. We're not even at the point of the DOJ referral of Meadows contempt, which now goes to the D.C., a U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And, and I want to just clean up something here. Merrick Garland is not in charge of deciding. It's not Merrick Garland that decides whether the uh, meadows of the world are going to be prosecuted off a of criminal contempt of Congress. It is the sitting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Yes, his boss is Merrick Garland, but that prosecutor makes the decision, not Merrick Garland. And you saw how long it took with Bannon. Even if they short-circuited a week or two, it's still going to be likely at or about or just after the um, midterms for any of this stuff to really play itself out. But when the dust settles, and you, you and I like to talk about the arc of history is long but bends towards justice, the chapter that's going to be in the book about Mark Meadows and his role in the Jan 6th is going to include the 38-page PowerPoint, election fraud, foreign interference and options for 6th Gen, which was created apparently by this former colonel in the army, intelligence colonel in the army, Phil Waldron, who got outed by Giuliani in his deposition testimony, who made this whole presentation that Meadows was involved with. Whether he gives an, an ounce more of testimony between the Verizon records, the 200 other people who have testified, and the emails that he, the 2,000 pages of emails and the 38 page PowerPoint, this is going to be enough to hang Meadows regardless. But that's going to be a whole chapter of this PowerPoint with a link out in future history books. Oh, I completely agree, Popak. And what do you make of the uh, district attorney in Washington, D.C., um, uh, filing a lawsuit under the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, it's the Attorney General, the oh, DC Attorney General. Oh, DC Attorney General. What do you make of yeah. what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think it's great. And here we get to do a little more tutorial for the legal AFers and the law school, <laughs> the, the virtual law school people. The the highest uh, chief legal officer of the District of Columbia, 
uh, of course, a federal district, is the attorney general for the District of Columbia. What did I say? Uh, district attorney, district attorney. I think. Uh, you said. Yeah, yeah. What do you um, think but, about but the, the attorney? But it's interesting because I really never thought about a DC attorney general until you know more recently. So that particular person, Carl Racine. If you go, if you go on his website, it's a, it's a pretty good website. They have a whole section I liked that was just people v hate, people v hate, which is not a case, but it is the philosophy of the office in going after hate based crimes on behalf of the people, in this case, the people of the District of Columbia. And so taking a page out of the Charlottesville case that you and I talked about two or three podcasts ago, in which they used the KKK Act of 1871, passed under Ulysses S. Grant, as uh, to make sure that freed slaves were given the 14th Amendment protections that were guaranteed to them by the U.S. Constitution, which is now codified memorialized in a statute in the U.S. Code, which is 42 U.S.C. Section 1986. So they'll refer to it either as a KKK Act conspiracy or a Section 1986 conspiracy. That is the foundation of the complaint that was just filed um, against 30 or more uh, defendants, including the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and all the other organizers of Jan 6, saying that their acts were conspiratorial, again, under 42 U.S.C. 1985, which is a conspiracy to interfere with a federal officer from exercising their duties, which in this case is the is the is Congress in certifying the election on Jan 6, which uh, they got in the way of, and, 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 19, and Section 1986, which is the KKK Act, in denying people equal protection, and to recover millions of dollars that the District of Columbia suffered as um, as as the victims, if you will, the people, the victims of the Jan 6 insurrection. I think they have standing. What do you think about the damage model, if you will, Ben, in that case? Look, I think that at all levels, it's critical that we hold these insurrectionists accountable. Um, as the wheels of justice move slowly but methodically in bringing criminal accountability, you know, I do think it is important you know, to have um, in this case, you know, the DC AG, you know, bringing a civil case, you know, when to hit these terrorists in the wallet as well. You know, you think about one of the tools in the toolkit of prosecutors in dealing with uh, international terrorism, right? Because of the flow of money and the banking system and its centralization in the United States being such a major factor to the international kind of monetary systems, um, being able to freeze bank accounts um, is a major tool in addition to the military, in addition to other types of you know tribunals and prosecutions and, and, and actions that could be taken. When dealing with domestic terrorists as well, those financial levers being brought to bear in terms of civil liability and dealing with who their funding sources are, um, I think is going to become increasingly important. It's just hasn't really been systematized in a way because January 6th was so unprecedented in our nation's history. But I think you're going to start seeing right now you're seeing the experimentation with the Ku Klux Klan Act and other financial levers like that. But I think 
what we need and what you'll see is more robust financial penalties as well um, to these domestic terrorists. Yeah, I, I think I think you're exactly right. That we're now in an experimental laboratory of how to use existing law and remedies against um, an egregious, unprecedented event. Just as Watergate was, just as um, Timothy McVeigh bombing, you know, the federal courthouse. And here, Popak, the difference would be is you have a political party that would yeah. be supportive of Timothy McVeigh. Like that's what we're seeing now is a yeah. political party that looks at the act of terrorism and calls him a freedom fighter. So you have the prosecutors in the Jan 6 sentencing using federal obstruction because they think that is the closest fit for the crime. Federal, then you got Republican judges that are pushing back and saying, well, obstruction's really for a legal proceeding, like a courthouse. This wasn't a courthouse. Why Why didn't you use the misdemeanor one? My theory the there, sentence? Popak, is it's even deeper than that too. One yeah. of the uh, most uh, uh, potent charges against Trump would be an obstruction charge in connection with January 6th. And so there, th these... Initial battles over obstruction, in my view, are proxies to kind of try to help Trump in a potential claim against him for obstruction. Well, I, I like that. So, but you have again, you have out of the you, know, you have prosecutors and plaintiffs' lawyers and attorney generals for District of Columbia going into their toolbox and trying to find a tool that works. The reality is, after this, this is what the Jan Six Committee is doing. This is what the House Ways and Means Committee is doing: is looking at the past events and making sure the past is not prologue, that these things don't happen in the future, and that, they're, and that future prosecutors have the right tools, just as they pass new laws after Watergate, the Presidential Records Act, things related to tax returns that you and I are going to be talking about, all came from the Watergate era. I'm hoping that if we get the Congress again in the midterms, that's why it's so important, that we're able to change law on the books to be used as a tool and as a, and as a uh, uh, a way to inhibit and prevent, you know, recidivism and and people doing bad things again. But if we don't get the Congress again, tying this back to politics, then we're never going to change the law in the books that will help future prosecutors and plaintiffs' lawyers stop and and uh, and go after the future Jan Six of the world. Because I'd like to think that was the last time this has happened on U.S. soil. I don't think so. Yeah, because many of the members of Congress from the GQP are terrorists themselves. Like they are. And they think actually, there was nothing wrong. They, and they think there was nothing wrong with what happened on Jan. Because they because they did it. A lot of them were. Right. A lot of them were. Right. We the got the shirt. We got the T-shirt. We were there. We liked it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing yes. you? from achieving your goals all the time, all the, all time. the time. You can't things we talk about on the show <laughs> is interfering with my mental health. Um, but at the end of the day, it is important that everybody takes mental health seriously as Popak and I do, and that we create, you know, safe spaces to talk about mental health. That's why I like better help as a sponsor, better help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in just under 48 hours hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. This is professional therapy. 
done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. Log into your account anytime, send a message to your therapist, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Although for me, they made a great therapeutic match right from the outset, um, and I haven't had to do that change. And look, I I use this, um, and I'm proud to say that I'm someone who uses BetterHelp, and I think everybody can benefit from speaking to a professional therapist um, at your own schedule. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. You visit their website, you'll read these testimonials that are posted daily, some great testimonials that I think mirror my experience that I just talked about. But go to BetterHelp, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Now, this is a special offer for legal AF listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash legal AF. That's betterhelp.com slash legal AF. Go to betterhelp.com slash legal AF and take advantage of all of their services. You won't regret it. Let's go to Delaware. Let's travel over to uh, Delaware. I've been there. <laughs> you've been, I've been, you've there. been there. So the state court in Delaware issued a ruling, a very, very lengthy, well-researched, uh, well-written order denying the Fox News motion to dismiss in the lawsuit brought by Dominion against Fox News for defamation. Um, Dominion lawsuit was a very well pled. Um, you know, I, I, you know I, I don't know if this one specifically was, but 100 plus pages, like all their lawsuits were like hundreds of pages with, you know, like exhibit after exhibit that set forth all of the defamatory acts. Um, in their motion to dismiss, Fox News raised a number of defenses. They raised a defense that's called uh, the neutral reportage defense. Stop, yeah. stop. Fox News is claiming that they are just a neutral reporter of news. Lou Dobbs, Maria Bartiromo, all of Ducey, all the people they bring on to these shows, which there's no barrier between opinion and news anyway, on any of their shows, you, they have the balls to claim, Ben, the neutral reporter uh, defense. So under the neutral reportage doctrine, the press need not, quote, suppress newsworthy statements merely because it has serious doubts regarding their truth. Instead, under the doctrine, the press enjoys, quote, immunity from defamation suits where the journalist believes reasonably and in good faith that his or her report accurately conveys the charges made. And so basically what that means is if you brought on 
a conspiracy theorist, but that was newsworthy. And you're asking that in that individual or individuals questions, you're not getting imputed their kind of crazy conspiracy defamatory stuff onto you as the reporter. But if you reasonably in good faith believe that that information is conveying like a legitimate point of view. And what the order pointed out too, is that you never even gave the other point of view really, you know, and that dominion sent you a list of the facts um, that were like, there was no denying them. They were completely. And they still read the stories anyway, and they they didn't read the dominion facts, but It's important to note, though, when you see the reporters, whether it's the Fox News reporters, the reporters from Newsmax or OAN, when they try to bury what they read that statement, though, sometimes and they say these are accusations that we don't believe are true, what they're actually invoking are doctrines like the neutral reporter they're, privilege so that they could defame people, but then try to claim they're, they're like they're like the announcer at the basketball game when they have to when they have to introduce the opposing team. It's always mumbled like you don't know who the player is. But but look, and there the, were other this, doctrines too. quickly pop out yeah. the fair report privilege is one of the defenses that were raised, which essentially is, you know, a very similar doctrine. I won't get into the weeds. And then finally, the defense that Fox News raised was the opinion defense that this was simply opinion and you can't sue. Which is the opposite of the first two defenses that you just talked about. (laughs) The problem with Fox News is that its very business model undermines all of the defenses that they just raised. They have made a ton, incalculable level of profit by blurring the lines, removing the barrier, and not being a legitimate news organization, and having it just be opinion after opinion. Well, not not this kind of opinion you're talking about, but but having fake or faux newscasts, you know, faux news, not Fox News, as people like to say, where they we just- We like po- to say Fox Ruse. Fox Ruse. Or are you a succession on HBO fan? I am. I haven't seen this season, though. So uh, all right. Well, I'll just take figure. one line. I won't. I'm not ruining any plot line. But there was a great, you know, it's modeled slightly after the Murdoch family. And they also own a right wing news organization. And one of and one of the uh, children said about their a news organization that they're just turning on the bigot spigot. And that was a, that's that was by Shiv, by the way. And that's what that's what the Fox News organization does. Fox News organization just turns on the bigot spigot and and reaps the dollars. So then you can't stand in front of a courthouse or in a courtroom and argue that you're just a journalist reporting the news if that's how you make your money. So we're in Delaware Superior Court. And just to give more of a lesson here, there's there's two major courts of the state court system in Delaware. One's the Chancery Court, which we talked about, which is probably where Fox wanted to end up because they probably would have got a little fairer shake in their view by the Chancery Court judges. But... I'm sure Dominion filed on purpose in the Superior Court. Now, Judge, I don't know him by name. I don't know him personally, but the judge here for the case um, in Newcastle County, Delaware, which is Wilmington Court, Eric Davis, was a partner in a fort, just full disclosure, in a firm that I started my career at at Scad Narps. There's about four or five firms in Delaware law firms that are like the feeders for the Chancery Court and the Superior Court. In fact, some of the seats are called like the Scadden seat. So obviously, Eric Davis, Scadden partner, really well-respected, representing companies like Dominion and Fox. He's a corporate litigator by trade. 
and he's probably going to end up on the Chancery Court, maybe the federal bench. But in a in a 52-page decision on a motion to dismiss standard, which you and I have, I think, have talked about in 37 other episodes, but in a motion to dismiss in that peculiar procedural posture, everything that's in the complaint for Dominion, everything is assumed to be true and given the light most favorable in interpretation against the movement, which in this case is Fox News. So Fox News doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. The complaint that's been filed gets the benefit of the doubt in every way, shape, and form. If I write in my complaint that the moon is made of cheese or I've got a flying spaghetti monster in my closet, for the purposes of that complaint, the judge has to assume that that is true. Now, I might be sanctioned separately for having written that, but he has to assume for the purposes of the motion that that is true. So under the motion to dismiss standard, the court found that the allegations of defamation, what's called per se defamation, have been adequately pled and will not be dismissed as a matter of law at the pleading stage. And let's get to trial or let's at least get the summary judgment, which happens after discovery. Of course, Fox wanted to kill this case now before it even got off the ground so they didn't have to have Maria Bartolomo and Lou Dobbs and all the other talk, Tucker Carlson have to give deposition testimony. But now, discovery is not stayed in this case, and I doubt they're going to get an appellate court to stay it, especially in Delaware, and they're going to they're going to be sitting in deposition in the next six months. So just one point for people are wondering, so wait a minute, in a complaint, I could say anything and the judge has to accept it as true. There are other mechanisms in the legal yeah. system, as Popak alluded to, that when you sign your name to a pleading, if you're putting false information in the pleading, like we saw with a lot of these post-election lawsuits by the Trumpers who are all getting sanctioned Powell, right now. Everything that Sidney Powell wrote was not true. Yeah. So you can lie in the complaint, but there are also levers where you're making these completely false and fabricated accusations in the federal court. It's called Rule 11 sanctions. And there are kind of similar rules in state court to Rule 11 sanctions where you can basically call out the other side and basically say, this is frivolous. And we're going to prove to your honor at this stage that it's frivolous and that you shouldn't accept as true. They're saying because they're literally just lying and we want you to sanction them. But otherwise, the court accepts the well-pled. That's an important line. The well-pled, not just any accusations, well-pled um, accusations and statements in the complaint as true um, as Popak just uh, set out. So we will keep you We'll keep you updated there on, uh, on what goes on with that lawsuit. And there's a ton of other lawsuits that are being filed by Dominion against other defendants. But I mean, clearly Fox News here is the deepest pocket, uh, meaning they have the most money of really any defendant that's being sued from the OANs to the Newsmaxes to the individual Giuliani's and Sidney Powell's and all of those types of people who don't really have any significant forms of assets, although OAN and yeah. Newsmax may have something. But there's real exposure here, though, that Fox News has. And especially if this case goes to trial, ultimately, I don't think Dominion is going to settle this case. I really don't. No, unless no, they're offered, I agree with you. Unless they're offered $1.9 billion that they're asking for, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, they're going to bring this case to a trial. Um, and, and the Murdochs and people like that are going to be called to a stand. I wouldn't be shocked if on the eve of trial, though, they're basically offered 
$1.9 billion by Fox, because at the end of the day, as, as crazy as it sounds, that isn't necessarily a material number based on the revenues that the News Corp. You know what I'd like to see under this uh, neutral reporter doctrine? I haven't seen it. Maybe Jordy or Brett can dig it up. How is Fox News reporting on its own lawsuits? I don't think they are is the, is, is the answer. I think right. they're, I think the omission of that is quite telling. <laughs> uh, Popak, we talked uh, an update on SB8. You know, we talked about the Supreme Court's ruling last week. It was a bit of an odd ruling. It kept SB8 in full force and effect in Texas and basically said, um, we, you know, you would allow uh, the appropriate uh, authorities and, you know, their individuals in this case, um, the, uh, the, the labs and the um, facilities that um, were available to individuals um, seeking abortion and the clinics uh, to bring lawsuits, but against the licensing agencies, but not directly against the court system um, and against the court clerks or the state. Um, or the state, yeah, right. um, you know, based on immunities that the state has, according to the Supreme Court, even though this is a clear end run around uh, what federal law is. And then in that ruling also that the federal government wasn't able to pursue the case that it had. Um, but the uh, structure that it was creating um, with keeping SBA in effect and then making this process was a very kind of slow, arduous process and keeping SB8 on the books basically made it seem like SB8 is going to be on the books for a really, really, really long time. Um, and what uh, Gorsuch did here kind of shows, I mean, he basically followed what the what the rules are usually, but um, in this case, there's probably a, emergency needs that it goes back to the trial court. But basically what's going to happen here um, and Popak break it down, but yeah. SB8 is going to be an effect for the foreseeable future um, for a very long period of time, um, at least until the Supreme Court rules on Dobbs versus yeah, Mississippi. The, June then, or July. And, right. and then basically Texas, I think, will then voluntarily withdraw SB8 and then just enact a law right. that is an, an, an abandoning abortion law. Right. Directly. I, you're, you're totally right. And to paraphrase you, my dear colleague uh, and co-anchor, uh, Gorsuch also fucked them um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the way that they made their request for an expedited ruling. He gave them that, but he sent it to the raw, in their view, in the ar abortion provider's view, the wrong court, which will create further delay. So let me untangle this because it's a really a procedural nest here. But I'll, I think within, if you give me two minutes, I'll get it untangled. We had a ruling five to four. Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. Roberts was in the minority. Last week, we talked about it in which the SB8 law can be challenged by the abortion providers, but they can only bring their suit against the Texas Medical Licensing Board and not against anyone else. And Roberts was in the minority, which is not a great sign for the future of Dobbs in the summer, the Mississippi case, because it showed that at least at this moment, he's unable to get a fifth vote to find that the constitutional right to pre-viability abortion overrides all other concerns and that SB8 should be uh, barred, its application should be barred while the appeal is going on. Roberts couldn't do that. 
In fact, in a affront probably to Roberts, Gorsuch ends up writing the vote that he needs, ends up writing the opposite opinion uh, last week that we talked about. Now, the uh, abortion providers said, all right, we'll live with the decision, but can we speed this up? Because every day is another day that a woman is not able to get an abortion that she has a constitutional right to, in our view, in the state of Texas. By the time we get to the summer with Dobbs, it's going to be one year since SB8 went into effect, which is which is a pregnancy term and 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 another and another quarter. So can we speed it up? Send it back. You have 25 days under the federal rules for the Supreme Court to enter its order, if you will, its decision. And the, and the abortion providers said, can you speed that up? Let's not wait another month. Every month matters literally in a pregnancy. So don't take 25 days. Do it tomorrow. And, and this was the second request, send it back to Judge Pittman, who's the other judge besides Tanya Chutkin that you and I like, it, the law firm of Chut- Chutkin and Pittman. So Pittman in Austin, who's the judge where they've gotten favorable rulings against SB8 uh, out of him, they asked Judge Gorsuch and the Supreme Court to send the case back to the trial court level and let us litigate now on the trial court level and get to the merits of the case so it can come back on appeal. And Gorsuch said, no, we're going to send it back to the Fifth Circuit. Well, that sounds weird. Why are they sending, Ben, a case instead of to the trial level back to an appellate court but beneath them? And you know that appellate court, the Fifth, is right wing. It's going to rule against this thing anyway and delay, delay, delay. And Gorsuch said he bought the argument, or the Supreme Court five, the, 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 the five needed to vote this way, supported the argument that a novel issue raised by the Medical Licensing Board in Texas that will require the Texas Supreme Court, now we're moving from federal system to state system. They want to go out to the state system. The highest court in the land for Texas on state issues is the Texas Supreme Court. And they want to get a ruling there as to whether the medical licensing board can even be sued at all because what do they have to do with abortion other than licensing the people? So the uh, abortion providers, I'm sorry, the, the uh, yeah, the abortion providers uh, are sitting quietly while there's a whole fight now going to be over, let's say, three to six months at the Texas Supreme Court level to decide whether the case should even go forward at all. It's another way to kill the case on behalf of the abortion providers, and Gorsuch has bought it hook, line, and sinker, and is a facilitator of it, and so is the other five or four voters on the Supreme Court. So it's another, as you would say, or as Tony Michaels would say, another fuck them. A lot of people have tagged us, though, with uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, Letitia James, saying that in New York and California, what they want to enact is an SB8 style law with respect to assault weapons, with respect to ghost guns and keeping these dangerous weapons off the street. And why don't we enact in these states basically a similar bounty hunter law? While we think these laws and this legal scheme, you know, should not exist if the Supreme Court is allowing something like SB8 to stay in place. Why not just do that in in, you know, with respect to other issues like taking assault weapons and, and ghost guns off the street? It was one of the things that in oral argument over SB8 that Kavanaugh himself raised during oral argument. What's preventing a state from doing that? And 
I encourage states to do that. I'm supportive of California's efforts. I'm supportive of New York's efforts. But the level of kind of evil geniusness of the Supreme Court and the mischief in their ruling, though, I think ultimately allows a path to declare SB8 to be unconstitutional, to allow SB8 to be deemed invalid. Um, but it delays that process from happening. And so when California does enact an SB8 style law with respect to guns, when New York enacts an SBA style law with respect to assault weapons, let me know your thoughts, Popak, but I think the Supreme Court, no, what are you talking about? They're going to say, we said that you can challenge SB8. We just said you have to go through kind of the proper methodology for doing it. And sure, that's going to take a long, but we never said that SB8 um, uh, you know, should remain in effect. And so I think that's kind of the structure they set up. And meanwhile, what the Supreme Court is going to do is they're over, they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, or they're going to embrace the Mississippi ban on abortions after 15 weeks. That would be the most positive result based on oral argument that we saw is just upholding the ban and not a complete overturn of Roe v. Wade. And then what the Supreme Court's going to do is they're going to basically strike down the SB8 style law in California, and they're going to strike down the SB8 style law in New York and try to basically say, no, we, we were okay with challenging SB8. We just elongated that process from happening. So I know I'm thinking eight steps ahead here, yeah. but I'm thinking that's what the Supreme Court's I'm doing not sure here. I love the attempt by Newsom and Letitia as much as you do. While I think it's creative and it's novel, I'm not sure I want to buy into the legitimacy of that type of um, bounty hunter law. Even, you know, people say, well, what's good for the goose and what's good for the gander and careful what you ask for and all of that. But if, if you and I and other thinking sentient human beings believe that the bounty hunter law is an improper procedural um, and even substantive attack to avoid constitutional review by, by the U.S. Supreme Court and federal courts, then I feel that way for all things. And I don't think saying, well, fine, we'll just throw in the towel and we'll use it for our own purposes, I think may backfire because... I don't want courts pointing to it and saying, well, we thought it was sort of not right, but look at all these democratic states that are doing it. That's one. Secondly, you know how sacrosanct this right-wing supermajority of the Supreme Court feels about the Second Amendment. And they're not going to allow any, you know, incursions on it. Um, you know, we we thought we thought religion was their animating feature. On that panel, it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be because they were okay with things we talked about last week that were incursions on the separation of church and state, which ended up being, I guess, pro-religion in a way. But Second Amendment, try to pry their guns from their dead, cold fingers. Good luck. I, I think we're playing with fire. And this is where you and I have an opposite view, I guess. If we, if the, if the Democratic governors try to use it to their advantage against guns. They should just pass laws against guns that fit with the contours of the sitting Supreme Court or the Second Amendment or keep taking challenges back to the Supreme Court and see what they can provide and take a page out of the out of the Republicans that way. Keep attacking and sending cases to the Supreme Court and hopefully Biden will get another pick. Something may happen. I mean, not I mean, look, I didn't I didn't expect Antonin Scalia to depart the court 
as early as he did. It's not, something could happen naturally on the court, which could change the balance. And I'm not sure this is the precedent I want to set in the meantime. Kopak, that was deep and unexpected, but we will see. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, we'll see what the Midas Mighty think about that. But I appreciate there's always good debate here on on the Midas Touch Legal AF podcast. And and just finally, Popak, I think we should briefly, briefly touch on it. It was a bad week for um, Trump in trying to prevent his tax returns and financial records um, from being disclosed to Congress. Really, two cases, you know, one, the district court, um, a district court level case that said that Trump um, that that Congress does have a right um, to have Trump's tax returns. It was Judge McFadden, who's actually a Trump appointee, which is um, interesting. And Popak, your analysis here, though, about what con- what Congress's powers are here, um, I think are, are is helpful and illuminating just to even know that Congress has that power. Um, but then I'll talk very briefly after that about the other uh, Court of Appeals case. So separate from the Jan 6 committee, special select committee, there has been, and it's been going on longer than the Jan 6 special committee, uh, almost since the moment Trump took office, uh, having not provided his tax returns, first time in 100 years, a sitting president or a presidential candidate didn't provide his tax returns. The House Ways and Means Committee, committee, which in the Congress sits over the Internal Revenue Service. So they have uh, powers of uh, checks and balance powers over the IRS. They decided uh, we're not really that comfortable with a president who may who may have foreign interests and other business interests, which may impact his being an appropriate representative and holding the highest uh, power of the law, the you know, highest, uh, most powerful person in the world position. We want, we don't like that that happened. And we're going to use our oversight powers to get to the bottom of what is in the current toolbox to prevent a president like Trump from, ha- from hiding foreign influence and other political or business interests that pressures that are on him that make him susceptible to doing bad things, right? Being co-opted, being corrupted. And we want to look at the current law and make recommendations for future law. Exactly what you and I just talked about earlier on this podcast, how we take the lessons and make sure the past is not prologue and we and they fix it. So House Ways and Means Committee, that's their power. That's their jurisdiction. Why is the IRS involved? Because there already is on the books, on their IRS manual, the presidential audit um, plan or program. And I did not know this. I don't know if you did. Did you know that that for the last like 40 years or 30 years, every president and and vice president has their personal tax returns audited every year by the IRS? Did you know that before we started podcasting? I did not know that until okay. you just said that. Now, you, the way I just said that, our listeners and followers are probably already figuring out the loophole. Personal tax returns are reviewed only under the IRS presidential uh, audit program. What's missing? Business tax returns. Now, generally, usually that doesn't matter because most presidents, except for a select few like Kennedy and a few others, they don't have a lot of like existing business that you have to worry about. Barack Obama had, let's be frank, no money when he came into office. Clinton had no money when he came into office. He, they didn't run operating businesses. Trump, it, that's how he got in, that he's not an insider. He's an outsider. He's a business person. He had thousands Bullshit. and thousands. 
He had that. What was that? What was that your impression? Yeah. Bullshit. He had thousands and thousands of limited liability companies protecting every for every business that he had, every real estate development, every Trump steakhouse, every hotel, every restaurant, every golf course, every the the store in the golf course, you know, the the one that sells the the t-shirts and the mugs and whatever, all of that. And so we had our first leviathan president who was just trump incorporated the, the irs's program and law does not permit them to audit the business tax returns and that's where all the action is in trump it's not in his personal return his personal return shows zero income zero taxes it's probably a 1040 ez it's like a one-page document he he lives and breathes his corporations so the so the house ways and means committee said we want to see the tax returns from the IRS or the Treasury Department that we oversee because we want to make recommendations as to whether that audit function is appropriate or whether we need to add new law to that. An appropriate and valid exercise of oversight by a committee of Congress. Trump, of course, hated that. The Treasury Department, now headed instead of by Steve Mnuchin, who was the Tre Treasury Secretary billionaire under Trump, is now headed by like a real person. And they said, okay, we're gonna turn <laughs> we're gonna turn over the tax returns. Trump intervenes in the federal case and says, wait, those are my tax returns. And it's an improper exercise of oversight power by the Ways, the House Ways and Means Committee. They're beyond their jurisdiction, and how dare they? And the judge, who again, bad day in BlackRock for, for Donald Trump, is a Trump appointee who said, Yeah. You're right on the facts about what happened, but you're really wrong about the law. He actually wrote that in his in his 45-page opinion. And here's why you're wrong on the law. The House Ways and Means Committee has a valid oversight obligation over the Internal Revenue Service. They're getting to the bottom of whether presidents, not just you, but future presidents should be audited and their corporations and businesses and trusts should be audited. And if we need to make that change, we have to see your returns and look at what the IRS um, did in its audit function. And we can't do that if you're going to stand in the way of this thing. And the, and Judge Chuck, and I almost said Chutkin, I'm sorry, Judge McFadden. You love Chutkin. Judge McChutkin actually came out and said, Trump, you're wrong, and I'm ordering that the returns be turned over. But once again, we're going to have a delay while parties take their case up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But, it, you know, I, I found this interesting. I found a lot of what you and I talk about interesting. But I found this interesting because I did not know that there was already a sitting rule requiring uh, uh, audit of presidents and vice presidents of their personal tax returns. Trump's argument in all of these cases is just so shameless and embarrassing, though. And so, odd. you know, he basically says the terrible precedent that you will be setting for future generations if Congress and the IRS is auditing the past president. It's like it's a very unique position to be president. Right. You shouldn't be engaged in all this weird financial entanglements that you're even worried about it. Future presidents should be like, hey. You want my tax returns and in all of the past, you know, presidential races, really, since like Nixon, the presidents would say people running would say, here are my tax returns. Here's my here are my business returns. Here's all of my returns. It, it should be a disqualifier. If you're not willing to turn over and be completely transparent about your business dealings, whether you hold them by trust, corporation, LLC or personally, then you, that should be a disqualifier for you to be president. Unfortunately, for that to happen, we'd have to amend the Constitution, which is never happening.
right? I mean, and the interesting thing is that Trump's going to face far more scrutiny. And I'm interested to see his filings in connection with his SPAC and the S4 documentation, because him sitting as a board of director, if he's going to, I, I doubt he actually will, because he's going to have to face scrutiny that way and background checks and investigations like for you to run a casino, for you to be a board member, for you to be most of jobs in the United States, you have background checks that the president of the United States is not subject to, um, which is just completely absurd. But talking about this is how we'll close legal AF today, though, but the delays have real consequences. And I think we see here. Uh, an example, a federal appeals court, another kind of Trump tax financial record case, this case from the House Oversight Committee, which requested documents from Trump's accountants, the Mazers firm, Trump then sued the accounting firm and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. You remember this from kind of all the way back in the day, the Supreme Court in a seven to two opinion, though, said that being the president doesn't make you immune from having to turn over tax returns and financial records. But the Supreme Court basically set out a four-part test to determine which records would have to be turned over um, and for the lower courts to apply that test. So the Supreme Court did say, yes, Trump, you do have to turn over some records, maybe not all of them, um, but in connection with the House Oversight Committee function. This is very different, though, than some of the kind of absolute rights that um, you were just talking about, Popak, in connection with IRS audits, which is which is a different and separate issue. This is just what can the House Oversight Committee do in its oversight functions. And so uh, the House Oversight Committee um, you know, issued this subpoena. And then there was this four-part test that was applied at the district court, which basically said most, but not all of the records should be turned over. Um, and the subpoena was overbroad. This then went into the district court to basically apply this four-part test. And they seem to agree with the district court that some, but not all of the records would be turned over based on this separate House Oversight Committee related subpoena. But the broader issue here, and that then will be appealed um, as well you know, to the Supreme Court, the application of the four-part test. I'd actually be surprised if the Supreme Court took it, because it's not really an overarching constitutional issue, but more of a application of a test that the Supreme Court had already rolled. But we'll see if the Supreme Court takes this specific case or not. But it does show you the delay strategy, though, right? Because from 2019 to 2021, we've seen no nothing being turned over as this has been fought out, has been fought out. And that is their strategy. What Trump is hoping is that the criminality, the fascism, the anti-democratic initiatives um, will overwhelm the system, that he could delay, delay, delay until you get people like Jim Jordan and Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greens and Lauren Boebert's and all of that crew on committees who will just cover up the criminality who will shut down legitimate investigations and erode our democratic process. And so it is important that we close our Midas Touch Legal IF episode, though, with that case, though, to let everybody and remind everybody as we go into the holiday season, what's at stake. I'm telling you, even with the filibusters, even with all of the Republican machinations, if we turn out and vote, 
if we have faith in the system, if we show up by the numbers and are not deterred by all the anti-democratic GQP-led propaganda, we can hold the House. We can hold the Senate. And there could be incredible progress uh, to the United States of America and incredible protections of our democracy of our judicial system. And so I'm always so grateful when the Midas Mighty, the legal AFers reach out and share with us the steps that they're taking, sending postcards, doing community gatherings, organizing, knocking on doors, taking all of those steps. I love that legal AF is interactive. We love um, your support. We'll be on um, legal AF, you know, during um, the holiday times. That's we'll what I was going to ask you. We're not taking a ho- the, the courts don't take a holiday break. We're not taking a holiday break. We will not be taking a holiday break. But for those um, you know who are taken off next week, have a very safe holiday. Rejuvenate, recharge. Keep listening to Midas Touch a podcast, Legal AF podcast, Politics Girl, Kremlin File, Zoomed In, Maya Culpa. Use AG One. Uh, use Better Help. <laughs> exactly, but recharge, rejuvenate, and let's get ready to fight in 2022. Popak, any final words? No, I'm just going to be consistent. I, I have this. Can you see this? I have a baseball, but it's really the Declaration of Independence. And it reminds me that, that what you and I do, participatory democracy at its best, is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory sport. And pick up the ball. If Democrats turn out, if Democrats turn out in every national election that matters, we win. It's when we take every other election off. It's not every four years getting off the couch and lining up and doing absentee voting and every other voting. It's every two years. Because if you wait to the fourth year, you're never going to have the social and progressive policies and laws passed unless you show up religiously every two years. Absolutely. Popak. Popak and I are practicing lawyers. We've been actually representing a bunch of legal AFers on various matters. Um, You know, if there's big personal injury cases, if there's sexual assault, sexual harassment cases, if you or your friend are, you know, have been injured or have victims of sexual assault and sexual harassment, there are any kind of bigger business disputes, um, big contracts, you know, type cases. Um, Popak and I have done our best to, you know, listen to a lot of the inquiries and incoming that we have. And, you know, we are currently representing people who have these, you know, these big cases, people who were in accidents and people who were wronged. Um, and, and we generally, Popak and I handle, you know, kind of the larger, you know, larger size cases, but, you know, happy to try to at least even let you know where your case may fit. So feel free to email me, ben at midastouch.com, B-E-N at midastouch.com. Michael Popak's email is mpopak, M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com. Again, special thanks to our sponsors, AG1 Athletic Greens and better help. We appreciate our sponsors. Make sure you use the code LegalAF and we'll see you next time on Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. Thank you for sharing your weekend and week with us on all this legal news. We will see you next time. Ben and Popak signing off. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.